KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is the Rundown, Philadelphia's local news podcast for Monday, January 24th, 2022. I'm Jay Scott Smith, along with Sabrina Boyd Circa and Brian Seltzer. This was a heartbreaking case of guns being in the hands of the wrong people and innocent bystanders being in the wrong place at the wrong time. A multi-shooting at Academy Park High School in Sharon Hill, Pennsylvania, happened on Friday night just before 9 o'clock. Police confirm a girl was killed in the shooting. The circumstances surrounding the shooting were not immediately known. According to the Academy Park High School sports schedule online, there was a football game. Now, over the days and weeks and months that have followed since, we learned the girl's name, Fantability. She was eight years old. And there were actually three other children who were wounded that night, too. One of them was Fanta's 12-year-old sister. It's hard, guys, in a lot of ways to process this story. I mean, one of the things is when you do a Google search for Fantability, the first thing that just smacks you right in the face is her picture. I think this is a story that should be paid attention to on a national level. There's so much going on in this, Sabrina, that I think that... I don't know if anything can be learned from it or you can reconcile it, but just to see the different layers that make up a tragedy, I think, unfortunately, it's here in this one. Yeah, I think this was a story that we all felt like we had to get deeper into because just the headlines and even all the reading that I've done about it, I still didn't quite fully understand how this could have happened. Jim Melwert breaks that down for us, and he's going to take us from top to bottom, day one to today, everything we know and what comes next. One other thing that should be noted is that there were charges last week against three police officers from Sharon Hill and their dismissal from the police force. The question is, was that enough to bring closure to Fantability's family? How was this grand jury investigation handled? And what, if anything, can we learn from a tragedy like this? As Sabrina mentioned, KYW News Radio's Suburban Bureau Chief Jim Melward, who's followed this story from the night that it broke and every step of the way is going to be joining us coming up later on. But first... Let's get a rundown of today's headlines. And we start this Monday with some actual good news about COVID. Well, at least as good as it can get. Cases of Omicron, as well as hospitalizations, are starting to finally head down out in the Garden State of New Jersey. That's right. It looks like they peaked around January 8th, which is kind of what experts have been telling us, right? Was that... Last week, the last couple of weeks, we're going to be the peak, and then it was going to slowly die down. Now, Governor Murphy is still urging caution. Of course, we're not totally out of the woods yet. He loves his metaphors. Here's what he said. Well, it appears that Omicron, that the Omicron tsunami is finally pulling back. We are in no position to say we're on dry ground. So we cannot look at a falling number and fall into complacency. I mean... Nobody likes a good pun or a good metaphor like I do, but it's it, that's that's certainly one way to look at it. And not only is Governor Murphy saying this, KWU's medical editor, Dr. Brian McDonough, also says that the threat of the Omicron variant is starting to wane here in the city of Philadelphia. We hit our peak, you know, we went up and now we're starting to go down. There's a sense of optimism for the late spring and summer that, you know, we might be able to really get back to doing things to as much of an extent as we can. Now, we saw this just a year ago. Well, maybe it's a little under a year ago when the vaccines first started to make the move through society. And then we had that brief period from about mid-April to about late July, early August, where it kind of felt like it was starting to get back there. So who knows? Maybe this is the start of 
finally kind of starting to see a recovery in this as opposed to just continuing to spin our wheels with this virus. We just need a reprieve, something, anything. This is truly the longest winter I can remember in my life. And it's what, a month and three days old. Today is January 24th. (laughs) I mean, it's oof. just thinking about being able to get outside and do stuff and having to understandably think about precautions and safety measures that you need to take to keep yourself safe, your family safe, your friends safe, all that good stuff. But yeah, this winter, they were not joking when they forecasted the long winter. The fact that there's like two months left in this thing, man. This long winter, which is not just a long winter, figured literally, but figuratively as well with COVID, anything we can get right now would be a win at this point. It really feels like a throwback to last winter. I'm starting to feel just the drain of I go home and there's no, I have nothing to do. I have nothing planned. We have to stay inside. And I'm starting to be like, I got to dig out my pandemic crafts again. Like, I don't want to be back in this life, but we are. But hopefully it's nice to hear that there may be a light ahead of us and I can uh, dream about a future of going out again. We've talked a lot there about covid The main focus of this episode today is dealing with fontability, dealing with the idea of gun violence. And we do have or we have had some pretty good news, per se, come up on that front as well. Now, depending on who you ask, that is. Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf announced last week that he'll be allocating $15 million to community groups throughout the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to fight gun violence. Now, our community impact reporter here at KWW News Radio, Raquel Williams, went out into the streets of West Philadelphia where gun violence has basically just ravaged that part of the city and asked people what they thought. And a lot of people said that there's been too much talk and there needs to be a whole lot more action. We need a solution. We need a solution. We just don't need no talk. We need action. I'm ready for action. Honestly, I don't know what this is, but I do know that we need to be more involved in our community. Now, others are happy to see at least some sort of attempt to address this issue. Rose Bryant helps run the programs in the community center. She says it's a good first step. No, I was very pleased with it. I wish it was more because you can always use more, but you got to start somewhere. But she also says don't waste it. Use it to help these young people come up with some new and different ideas, something that the kids want to do. That lady sounds like she's probably got the best idea. You hear a number like $15 million, which, hey, that's a lot of money. Don't hear what you got to say. 15 mil mil is a lot of money. But she said operatively that I picked up there is that you got to start somewhere with this. And this at least sounds like a starting point, if nothing else. Right. I mean, money, having money for this kind of thing is always good and always needed. So great. Then the next question is, how are we going to spend this? What are we going to do that's actually going to see results? Some people were suggesting putting the money into schools. Fund the schools. Give the kids what they need. It's not enough books. They need new desks. If you give a school an upgrade, maybe you can change the attitudes of the children's way of learning. It sounds like something that has been talked about before, but this idea of just creating places that obviously are safe, but I also think desirable to be in. So maybe that goes back to school. Like, yes, education of itself 
vitally important. But if some money can be put towards rehabbing some of these schools, developing programs that keep kids there rather than places where they could either be in or put themselves in harm's way, that could go a long way too. I mean, listen, uh, this is probably not the best comparison or parallel to draw, but when I go into the station, I love going into 2400 Market because it's a brand new facility. It feels nice. There's an energy there. So if you can give people a place where they want to be in, feel pride in being in, um, perhaps that reduces the risk that some um, people, whether they're kids, whatever the age, uh, but thinking mostly of kids in this case, uh, will want to stay away from doing something that uh, could change their life for the worse. There's a sense of self-worth tied to that too, right? If kids go to a school that's run down in their neighborhood, feels like you know, you're know you just going to end up in a bad situation because you were born here and that's just how things are, then that's how things end up. If you give them a good environment, they're learning positive things, they feel good about being there, and they feel like they can achieve things, then hopefully they won't resort to violence and drugs and all the other things that lead into this cycle. It is a vicious cycle. It doesn't take one particular thing. Money helps. There needs to be, obviously, investments made into education, investments made into actually getting guns off the street. Conflict resolution is always a thing. This story that we're about to talk about here in a few minutes is a perfect example of conflict resolution, a perfect example of all these different resources that are needed to kind of keep tragedies like what happened in Sharon Hill on August 27th from happening. In a few minutes, we'll break down what we know about this developing case of the death of eight-year-old Fantability, who I mentioned again, was shot in Sharon Hill on August 27th, 2021. And the three police officers who answered that call that night have now been charged in her death. We'll get more on that coming up. I'm Jay Scott Smith along with Sabrina Boyd-Serka and Brian Seltzer, and you're listening to The Rundown. Welcome back to The Rundown. I'm Jay Scott Smith with Sabrina Boyd-Serka and Brian Seltzer. And for the last five months, Sharon Hill, a tiny borough in Delaware County, just minutes away from the Philadelphia International Airport, has been dealing with an unspeakable tragedy. But last week, a grand jury investigating into the shooting death of an eight-year-old girl named Fontability resulted in three police officers being charged and dismissed from the Sharon Hill Police Department. So obviously there's a lot to unpack here. And to help us out, here's KYW's Suburban Bureau Chief Jim Melward. He's been covering this since the very beginning back when it first happened. Jim, thanks for coming on to the rundown to talk about this with us. Thanks for having me, Jay. So, Jim, let's first start what we learned last week and then kind of go back to some of the key parts of this story for people who may not know exactly what exactly is going on here. What recommendations did the grand jury make to the Delaware County District Attorney Jack Stolsteimer and who was charged and what were they charged with? So the grand jury, which has been at work at this uh, since November, uh, came back recommending charges uh, voluntary manslaughter and involuntary manslaughter, also 10 counts each of recklessly endangering another person uh, against three former Sharon Hill police officers, uh, 34-year-old Devon Smith, 25-year-old Sean Dolan, and 41-year-old Brian Devaney. And here is Delaware County District Attorney Jack Stolsteimer explaining. Having been with the grand jury through this process, I could see uh, how they all respected uh, the difficulty of the job of a police officer in 21st century America, uh, and they had great respect for them. Uh, this was a split-second decision, 
but the grand jurors and I believe that officers need to be held accountable uh, and they need to be accountable when they make tragic mistakes like this. So, Jim, why specifically were those officers charged with manslaughter? What goes into that? Why not murder charges there? (laughs) Let me put my uh, my not a lawyer, but play one on the radio disclaimer here. Um, Basically, and I'm going to kind of try to make this as simple as possible. So apologies to the legal experts out there. Basically, murder kind of takes it to another level of, of, you know, malice or more of uh, somewhat of of, of intent. And that's not exactly the legal terms. And and a lot of it is kind of what went on um, leading up to uh, what happened. Um, Manslaughter tends to be more uh, reckless or or grossly negligent, whereas murder is more like, I want to kill you. Voluntary manslaughter is, is still a pretty serious, it's it's a, a, a first degree felony um, and is still a, a, a very serious charge, you know, as a, as a first degree felony. You know, I, I think people are saying, you know, those police officers didn't go to the game with the intent of killing someone, but the the, the what's alleged here is the 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 gross negligence uh, or or just the reckless uh, manner that that they used uh, deadly force. A lot of what Stolsteimer kept saying there was accountability, accountability, because you look at a situation where I mean a doctor can't accidentally kill somebody and not at least get sued for it. This is a case where. This young lady ends up dead. In fact, let's just kind of go back to that night. It was August 27, 2021. And kind of the domino effect of this is what's really made this so just terrible. What happened that night? How did we get here where an eight-year-old girl is dead and numerous people are facing all kinds of charges? Picture your typical football field with with bleachers, you know, and a fence going around it. And then one main exit in and out of that fence. And, you know, that's a typical, everyone can imagine that if you've been to a high school football game, it's no different than what most high school uh, fields are, are set up like. So everybody at the end of the game is, uh, is, is leaving through that, that main exit and about a block down there, there's a, a, a road that kind of runs between the school and, and the football field. At the bottom of that road, at the corner kind of, of of the far end of the football field, two teenagers who were at the game uh, who and had gotten in an argument. One had gone back to his car to get a gun. One already had a gun on him. Uh, again, these are allegations. They have been charged um, with, with crimes for, for this. They pulled their guns and started firing at each other. A series of gunshots. So then you have the police up that street standing by the exit. And they are on the opposite side of the street from the football stadium. The same time those shots ring out, a car turns up the street and starts coming toward where everybody is exiting the football field. The three police officers, according to the grand jury presentment uh, and the allegations in the, uh, the affidavit of probable cause for the charges that are filed against them, they draw their guns and start shooting at that car. As they're shooting at that car, they hit four people. One of them is eight-year-old Fantability. She dies from her injuries. That's the the real 30,000-foot view of, of how everything played out. So a car is coming down the street. Police open fire on it. 
did the car have anything to do with the shooting that was happening with the two teenagers, or was it just a car that just happened to be wrong place, wrong time? Yeah, that, that's a good, good question. The car was not involved with the shooting. And so that's kind of the, the, the key here to the charges being filed against the police officers is, you know, the, 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 well, there's a lot of things. But the, the, the answer to that question, no, that car did not have anything to do uh, with, with the gunshots. And we bring it back to this whole thing starts as essentially two teenage boys who have beef with each other and decide to start shooting at each other outside of a football game. That's what's really set this whole domino effect off. And they were charged with multiple crimes in November, including first degree murder. So where did things stand with the two teenagers who were at the scene at the same time? So they were charged uh, with with murder. They were charged with with Fantability's murder. The legal argument, and again, it's pretty dense, so just to kind of gloss over it, if you do A and A causes B, uh, then you could be responsible for that. So murder charges were filed against these two teenagers, but we were told last week that those charges, the murder charges, are being withdrawn. Uh, they are still charged uh, with, with shooting at each other, with attempted murder uh, and aggravated assault, which, again, are, you know, pretty serious charges, but the, the more significant murder charges of fantability are being dropped. And, and you know, th- those were controversial charges. And, and there are still people who feel they should be charged. Uh, there are a lot of people who feel that was that was a, a, a gross overreach uh, by the DA's office. Uh, and that argument probably, I don't know that it'll ever be resolved. I know Jack Stolsteimer gave a statement about withdrawing those charges. Let's hear what he had to say about that. As we developed the grand jury, uh, developed information that made us believe that those charges, while warranted, weren't going to be able to be sustained uh, through the criminal justice system. Uh, so we withdrew those charges. One young man uh, accepted responsibility today, Seen Strand. He pled guilty this morning to aggravated assault. He accidentally shot a 13-year-old boy who will carry the trauma of that night uh, in his body for the rest of his life. Uh, and for illegal possession of a firearm. So we're trying to move forward by holding everyone accountable for their actions that evening who were firing guns. I'm recognizing it's going to take a lot more than that for the community to be able to heal. This thing is all bad. Like It was all bad from the very beginning. Somehow this went from those teenagers to the officers. How quickly did the officers become the focal point of this investigation once they started to kind of clear this up and figure out what exactly happened here. Initially, you know, the everything. So as these things are happening, you can imagine the chaos and everything. Uh, and initially it's thought that there was a, a gun battle p- between police and someone else. And then as the investigation happens, it turns out, oh, wait, those gunshots were down there. They were never at police. They were never at the crowd. Uh, and police, uh, according to the investigation, you know, may have improperly used uh, a deadly force, and that that was what killed Fantability, and and so then the focus becomes on the police officers, uh, and that was you know in in November then when when the grand jury uh, is convened to kind of look at this, and then that takes it out of our view. Everything that happens in front of a grand jury is secret for the purpose of the investigation, so that they can do things without people being worried that what they say might come back and and they might get in trouble for it, or, or you know somebody might come after them for it. You know, there's, there's a reason for grand jury secrecy. 
And, you know, we learned a lot more about the investigation about, you know, what, what police thought that night where they, they thought that the gunshots were at them, according to uh, the grand jury presentment, there are quotes in there uh, where, where they say uh, that there was a belief that, that they were under attack, that, that gunshots were, were being fired at them, which we, we now know is wrong. And we, we talk about this and it, it's, you know, it, it's so easy to have an opinion and, and so easy you know, to, to, to Monday morning quarterback this, but you know, these split second decisions that have to be made, you can have all the training in the world, you know, but you still don't know how you're going to react when it, when it happens and, and not to defend you know, or, or even sound like I'm, I'm trying to defend anyone. It's, it's a horrible tragedy, but you know, you, you hear, you hear DA Stolsteimer say it and you hear, you hear people get angry uh, when they hear it, that it was a, a split second decision. But at the end of the day, it was, and you have a car coming up from, gunshots you have a crowd of people leaving a football stadium it's all but impossible to put yourself in that situation to imagine what you would do uh, if, if your job is if you're tasked with protecting these people and you don't know the motives of this car coming up at the same time you know I, I don't need to tell you this jay i think you have some experience with police officers one of the most important things anytime i mean and anyone who handles a gun if you're firing a gun, you need to know what's behind what you're firing at. And that's it. That's it. Target practice. You know, you're in a crowd of people. So again, I mean, there, there, there's so much here and it's so easy for people to get into their camps. And, and, you know, I, I guess it, it's a long way of saying, I'm glad I don't have to make decisions here because th- this is a really, really challenging case. But as you mentioned, it starts with two teenagers who weren't supposed to have guns firing guns at each other. It, it's something that a lot of police officers don't think they really understand this. My dad, with what Jim is referencing, my dad was a police officer for 33 years. And the thought of when you reach for that gun, you know that it's going to be final. Like something's going to happen. Even if you don't hit somebody, even if you just, by simply pulling that gun, you are making a decision that that your life is in danger, the life of somebody else is in danger, and you have to make that, as he said there, split second decision. And Jim, to your point, This is something that community members and civic leaders, local politicians, and even protesters continued to draw attention to was that those three police officers remained on active administrative duty while the grand jury was conducting the investigation. Now, this was State Senator Anthony Williams at a rally not long after the shooting. We are holding on by a thread. We can't wait much longer about what this process is going to look like. If it's forensic evidence, we need to know what that means, how long that's going to take. If it's going to be another investigator, we need to know who that is and how long that's going to take. So, Jim, how did people feel about those cops staying on board? And why were they allowed to stay on the force as long as they did? You know, during the investigation, the officers were on, you know, their union rules or different different guidelines uh, as far as their employment. You know, as soon as charges were filed, the uh, the borough council voted uh, six to one, I believe, was the vote to uh, to to fire the officers, and there was a lot of frustration among the community, and and you can see it from from you know community members' point of view of you know there wouldn't be this if if this were flipped around, and my cousin or or you know one of my friends did this, they they wouldn't you know be on the clock collecting money uh, you know out on the street free, things would have moved a lot quicker. So so you can understand. At the same time, again, not defending it. I'm not saying who's right or wrong. I'm just saying, like, everybody put yourself in, in other people's shoes, and you can understand why there was so much frustration over over how long uh, the, the process took. We've talked about the teenagers. 
we've talked about these three cops. We've talked about the reaction in the community. The one thing that we haven't really talked about is Fountability's family. This girl's eight. Eight-year-old girl. You just want to go to a high school football game. Their family's never really going to be whole again. Do you have a sense of how they felt this investigation was handled? Uh, talk to their lawyer, Bruce Castor, longtime Montgomery County district attorney and, and county commissioner here and uh, uh, kind of a lightning rod of over the, the past few years has defended Donald Trump in, in impeachment and uh, no stranger uh, to the spotlight uh, is Bruce Castor, he, but he is representing the family uh, and talked to him last week. And there were, even as the charges were being announced, there were still groups that were upset over how long this had taken uh, and felt that the family was was being handled improperly. I have not talked to the family. I'm only going off to, uh, off what uh, off what Castor has told me, but he says that they felt it was it was handled well. I believe the uh, the grand jury in the district attorney's office uh, hit it out of the park. Did exactly what uh, I would have uh, thought that the law and the evidence uh, warranted. In fact, I think they were more aggressive than they might have been, and I was afraid they that the inability to match up a projectile to an individual gun might be uh, a problem for them. And it still may be a problem for them. But uh, I give a lot of a lot of credit to the DA's office for their aggressive uh, following of uh, up on this case. What he's talking really quick, just to, to kind of clarify what he's talking about, is the bullets were, were too damaged to say, like, that specifically came from that gun, that specifically came from that gun. And not even sure that you could have, I, I believe, because the if they're all the same gun, how much would you be able to tell, you know, this bullet came from this gun, but they're the same, you know, same type of gun. So there, there was question of if you couldn't tell which gun fired, fired the, the fatal shot, what would happen with charges? And so that's what he's referencing there when he says, um, you know, being unable to, to do the, the, the ballistics analysis. Jim, before we wrap this up, want to play one more cut here of a recent interview you did with the district attorney, Jack Stolsteimer. And then let's just kind of get your response to this. And just this is just coming off of everything that's gone on here with this particular case. I'm not sure there is a silver lining. This is just a, a series of absolutely tragic events uh, that came together and robbed us of, of fantability and, and wounded four other people. But what the public has to understand is in that moment, these officers had to make a split second decision. And they did so, but it was tragically wrong. You know, at the end of the day, we can't have juveniles running around with automatic weapons uh, in their waistband. I mean, that's the bottom line here. We need to make our community safer. We have to do something about making sure that young people know the consequences of picking up a gun. And we have to maybe even do something about making sure that they don't have the opportunity to pick up a gun. But at the end of the day, when this is all said and done, is we need to bring the community together. There can't be a divide as they're too often is in everything that's going on in this country anymore. Um, there can't be a divide between the law enforcement community and the community itself. Everybody has to work together. Community policing really is the answer. The more people can get to know each other and trust each other from the law enforcement side and from the community side, the better outcome, the more public safety we all have. Jim, when you hear that, what do you even make of this? What can even come of a story that's just, again, this is all bad? Yeah, well, you know, we we talked about uh, you know Bruce Castor representing the family, and and that's in, in the civil suit, and and uh, you know there, there's a financial aspect of that, but there's also you know a, a request of of regulations, requirements, training, 
upgrading training and and working on that side of things. Do we want money out of that to compensate the family for losing this this vibrant little girl? Yes. But what we also want is we, we want a set of regulations and, and uh, requirements that uh, boroughs like Sharon Hill must go through in training their police and continuing and upgrading their their training and their ability to stay abreast of trends in, in the in the criminal law so that, uh, you know, we, we graduate from the police academy, more highly educated, highly skilled uh, officers that continue to learn uh, while they're not only on the job, but at the behest of the of their municipality. And as you hear from D.A. Stolsteimer, you know, trying to somehow deal with this and, and you know, we're all outside Philadelphia. We know what's going on there with with teens and guns and somehow trying to tackle that problem of, of all right, I have a problem with you. Well, you know, we're going to pull guns and, 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 and shoot at each other. And, and it's hard for a 16 year old to understand the finality of, of pulling a gun, not only of, of killing someone, you know, they, they, they don't understand life and death. They're, they're so young, but then also, uh, the punishment aspect of it, you know, can you really get through to them what it what it means for them to spend decades of their their life when they've only been alive for 16 years or 17 years that they're going to spend, you know, twice that at least in, in prison. And so I don't think the, the, the punishment aspect has much of, of any effect. But what do you do? You know, I mean, how do you how do you get through this? So, uh, again, Jay, I'll say it again, I, you know. I'm glad that, A, I don't have to make the decision as a police officer with my back to a crowd of people trying to decide, uh, hearing gunshots, what I have to do now. Uh, I'm glad that I'm not the DA and that I don't have to figure out how to charge. And I think, you know, that's that's one of the reasons for the uh, for the grand jury. And, and I have a daughter who's about to turn eight. I cannot imagine, and I don't want to imagine, what this family is going to. Like you said, a summer night, August 27th, Let's go to the football game. You're just enjoying time with your family at a football game. Who can comprehend their daughter, their eight-year-old daughter getting killed? All these things. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's incomprehensible, but this is where we are. And boy, if you have the answers, you know, we'd love to hear them, but we, we got to figure something out. This is a very difficult story. It's difficult. It's confusing. It's confounding. All these different things meld together on this and, Jim, you've done a really good job kind of helping to at least piece a lot of this together. How can people check out what you're working on? At Jay Melwort on Twitter or on the radio. That's Jim Melwort, KYW News Radio Suburban Bureau Chief Jim. We thank you for coming on this episode of The Rundown, which is a production of KYW News Radio Original Podcast. The show is produced by Sabrina Boyd, Circa, and Brian Seltzer. The director of podcasting for KYW News Radio is Tom Rickert. I'm Jay Scott Smith. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Scott Smith, real Jay Scott Smith on Instagram and Facebook. You can hear me every afternoon on KYW News Radio starting at 3 o'clock for Philadelphia's Afternoon News. Be sure to follow The Rundown on Twitter at The Rundown PHL. Again, it's The Rundown PHL, all one word. Listen for free on the Odyssey app or just about wherever you get your podcasts. So for Jim Melwork, Sabrina Boyd-Circa, and Brian Seltzer, I'm Jay Scott Smith thanking you for checking out this Monday edition of The Rundown.